Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, everyone. I'm Nick Saveri. And I'm Mike Leon. Well, welcome you all back to our show. Can we please talk? Uh, tonight's topic, very topical, no pun intended, uh, is the coronavirus. Uh, this episode is especially important to me on a variety of levels. Uh, first and foremost, as a citizen of the United States and just seeing the response nationally at the state level, even locally, and how that affects me. Uh, I also think about this a lot as a father and educator, seeing what the impact has been in our school system, uh, and as it's ref- as it's directly affected my oldest daughter, you know, virtual kindergarten for a five-year-old. <laughs> What's that all about, right? Right. Uh, so that's what brings me here tonight to be excited to talk about how we got here, and ultimately, how do we come out of this? Yeah, and kind of along those same lines, you know, the coronavirus for me has been, it's been a weird topic because it's been conversations, especially having lived in New York City, um, and then in March, when everything happened, I actually got a job offer out of state. It got frozen because of uh, COVID-19. And then uh, we ended up coming down to Florida anyway, my family and I, and, and kind of quarantining down here with uh, my wife's family and, and some of my family that lives you know, in the Florida area. And then just kind of seeing, like you said, how at a state and local level, New York handled the early shutdowns and lockdowns and curfews and versus what Florida was doing, especially in Dade, Broward and Palm Beach counties versus what the rest of Florida was doing where the rest of my family lives in like Orlando area. So um, it's, it's, it's a pretty personal topic, obviously, because we live in this country and because uh, people's lives have been affected and I've been you know, working remote uh, since the pandemic hit. But I think it's a great time uh, more than, than ever right now, especially as, as cases are starting to rise back up and especially not only here domestically, but internationally, that we kind of look at the pandemic overall, you know, the why it's been politicized, and um, all these different aspects as to why we aren't treating something like at this level, an infectious disease, a virus, uh, with a little bit more care and, and, and remorse um, from that perspective. So we think about first, um, where it all began. So we think about, and I think for both of us, I think of, um, I mean, obviously, you know, historically, what we're all, we're all going to think about 50 years from now and so on is Wuhan, you know, coming out of, from what I remember, somewhere in the, in the late fall, winter of uh, 2019, understanding that in China had been, had been the, the beginnings of an epidemic. Yeah, sometime in late December, I believe, somewhere in the wet markets of, of Wuhan is actually where it started. But then we start seeing around January, just report national, just now globally of something that was coming. Um, and then really from that point on, February to me gets a little fuzzy that way. Um, personally for me, because we were just having our second kid. But then um, as things start to build up around, to me, the date that's always going to always going to feel most personal for me is March 13th. And around that time that um, I remember roughly what was going on in New Rochelle, you know, being home, seeing what's happening in in New York, uh, specifically in New Rochelle, and just realizing something has taken off. Right. New Rochelle, and then also Seattle. Seattle, somewhere in um, in Washington State, seemed to be another hotbed. 
and March 13th, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that date because that was the time when uh, the, the White House and, and President Trump had declared a national emergency. So it's probably why you're correlating that. Um, and yeah, it's, I think around that time for a lot of people, for myself, you know, in the beginning of March, I was, I was at a birthday party for uh, uh, one of my close friends. And, and just to show you um, how this virus was easily transmissible, and a lot of people didn't know about it at that time, you know, you come in and, and you hear about the social distancing and, and washing your hands, right? But at that time, there was no mask enforcements or things like that. So, you know, we're at this party and there is somebody that was a little bit under the weather that was trying to take precautions you know hey try not to come around me just in case and things like that well from that party actually uh, over the next couple of weeks um at least at least five to six people were all diagnosed with it via telehealth visits one person actually flew back to wisconsin with it an older an older person um and ended up being hospitalized with it so it was a little bit of a scary time because you know we were at that party, my wife and my daughter. And, and so then you see three weeks later, and now we're in a different state, right, under different municipality, you know, regulations. And, you know, my friend's telling me, hey, you know, like, I'm struggling to walk up steps, you know, I got diagnosed with this via telehealth visit, and, and his mother in law got diagnosed. And so you just didn't know what was going on at that time, you know, and it, it was, I guess it was a little bit scarier back then, um, obviously, it's a little bit more advanced now in terms of the therapeutics that are available and things like that and the testing that's being done. But um, it, was, it was a pretty crazy time, especially for us traveling across state lines and, and, and going to a different state that had, you know, different set of rules and regulations and really um, hadn't started to enforce like what New York was doing. It was also the other personal side to me, too, was that my parents, I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. Teaneck, New Jersey was one of the first towns in, in New Jersey, Northern Jersey, close to the city, that had this very interesting situation of a curfew that had been in place, at least my experience of it. Right. So now suddenly my parents are there. My parents, you essentially almost couldn't drive into the town. You know, they basically had been under curfew and they were being very restrictive about um, people who could enter the area because they had just a flood of cases. So of course, here I am, like worried about my parents and they're basically just kind of middling about their backyard. They're, you know, my dad's retired. My mom is close to be retired. And just checking with them every day. Like, how are you feeling? What's going on? And my parents, from their perspective, had felt fine. You know, they were walking around. They got their little dog. They're getting their time outside. And they're, they're making the best of it. Um, but they were very much aware of just the hospital cases going up. My parents, you know, where they, you know, our house is maybe about a mile and a half away from Holy Name Hospital which had one of the huge um, just outreach of our outbreak of cases, you know, in right, the, right. so that was, that was the other part too. It was like, you've got family immediately nearby who are in a very particular hot zone um, and right. just play out there. Yeah. And I think right around that time too. Um, and you, you mentioned the March 13th date, but my last day in office at the job I was at prior to the current job that I have was I think March 10th or 11th. And it was crazy because I never got to see those people again, those coworkers. I ended up taking another job, you know, uh, recently or in the last couple of months. So the pandemic really changed me because I started working remote and then went to a different state and then went to a different company altogether. So the onboarding process of working remote, um, luckily, you know, the, 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 um, the industry that I'm in, at least digital is, 
you know, all computer-based programs and even what we're using right now, Zoom technology to, to conference um, is, is what we use, uh, you know, at, at that job. So it, it worked out perfectly, but just taking that as an example, like, you know, <laughs> here I am in mid-March in New York City, you know, paying New York City rent, walking to work, and then a few weeks later, I'm living in, in a different state, uh, closer to family, lockdown. Um, so it's, it, it pretty much uprooted a lot of people. And, and you saw there's a lot of numbers and statistical data, especially from cell phone tracking, that people did start to kind of leave these hotspot areas and go either west or south. Um, and then, you know, the uptick of cases started to, you know, matriculate from that in the West and South region. So it, it kind of changed a lot of people. Yeah, it was interesting because um, what we understand now about New York, and this has been reported in the New York Times recently about from a real estate standpoint around, around what I feel like it was around late August, the story around Labor Day weekend, actually, a story had been featured in the New York Times about uh, the move to the suburbs of New Jersey which has been a trend for a few years now, but particularly now uh, this year with what's going on with COVID and um, just the reality of working from home. You know, more organizations, companies are becoming more comfortable with that. Coincidentally, from a personal side, we were in the process, of, we still are actually in the process of moving. Um, my wife took on a new position. Um, so, you know, we're actually in the process of moving to Pennsylvania. So here we are, you know, selling our home, um, essentially being in a position where this onrush of people are coming in and we started noticing like just spikes in just the number of people that want to take a look at the house. Uh, um, so, and just sort of making sense of all of that. And, and by understanding too, that you have these different people coming in the home. So every time we leave our house and you come back, you're immediately you know, wiping down door handles, um, being very cautious as to where about the house you go, making sure you get to the, get to it before the kids do. And, um, but just the idea of like masks wiping down, constantly behaving as though you are just coming into a, a biohazard zone. Right. And, you know, it's a perfect segue as, as we continue to talk about, you know, this pandemic into, you know, like how the, the U.S. responded to this, you know, at a local, mm -hmm. state and federal level. Um, you know, we gave the timeline earlier about when the first cases came in from China, right? And when they kind of hit our shores and when the first person passed away from it and then the, the national emergency that was declared in mid-March. But along the way, there's been this political effect, right? Because, and whatever side you are on the political argument is not what we're talking about in this podcast. What we really try to base it on is a timeline of factual information that, that happened throughout, right? So uh, the first thing that's always talked about is, is that travel ban that was instituted um, from China. And while the travel ban in essence uh, did place restrictions on travel, it, res it placed restrictions on travel from Chinese citizens, right? So there's statistical data out there that shows that there was over 25,000 American citizens that were in mainland China that still traveled during that time period to the U.S. And I think there was about 1,600 or so based on these numbers that were supposed to be tracked by the government and their movements and this information was kind of lost along the way. So here you have, you know, a group of people that have come into this country now from what's designated as a, as a hot zone. And we've kind of lost track of where they are. So, you know, you try to do this contact tracing, which at the time, 
you know, really wasn't instituted here. A lot of people didn't know about it uh, and what the steps were to take to actually find out where a case and who that person had been in contact with. And, and, and it happened, you know, you mentioned the Neurochelle thing where there was a patient that, uh, a patient, excuse me, like um, a person that contracted the virus that took the Metro North home. And that's how this kind of all started, at least from the New York perspective, even though there could be data that shows that this was already here prior to on the West Coast. Um, but it just shows like the response from the, the state, local, federal officials, there was no uniformity, right? And I think it was because it was all new, you know, nobody really knew what to do at the time. E even when Trump instituted the restrictions, just to give you an example, you know, I have family that lives in Germany, my sister lives in Germany, and she was actually supposed to come to America within that time frame, but wasn't able to because of the restrictions that later on got placed traveling from Europe as well. Although she actually was able to come. She didn't. She, at the time, she lives on a military base. So at the time, they had told her, no, you're not able to travel based upon Trump's policy. But then weeks later, they were like, oh, no, you can go if you want. So even that misinformation of somebody who lives on a military base, she, she wasn't able to find out whether or not she could come. And that was kind of spreading to American citizens that were kind of living around the world that they weren't sure if they could come back to the US. You know, I talk about what happened from me transitioning from New York to Florida, right? The day that we left on March 25th to come to Florida, about two days later, DeSantis put, the governor here in Florida put into effect, um, they were looking at, at vehicles that were coming in from, I believe, from New York to Florida. And they were doing random stops just to kind of find out, hey, where are you going? Make sure you quarantine. How effective was that program? I have no idea. But it just goes to show you that, you know, up until that time, Florida's cases were kind of down, whereas New York's cases were higher. There, it was almost that effect of, hey, well, we don't want these people coming from this state. But there wasn't really any state-to-state -state travel guidelines that were being banned, right? We had, you know, mixed messages at the federal level of, well, we should stay home, but obviously we can't enforce everybody staying home, so we'll leave it up to the states. And then some states were like, you should stay home to slow the spread. Other states were like, well, our cases are down, so we don't need to have everybody stay home. So just to, all of these mixed messages, and then as the days go on, the weeks go on, the months go on, the cases go up. Um, and then, you know, eventually the mortality rate starts to follow that as well. Even though it's a small percentage of it, the mortality rate still um, starts to increase, not only here domestically, but, but worldwide. So it, how it really started and where we are right now, and, and, you know, again, regardless of where you are on the political side of this, which we're going to talk about later as to why a virus is being politicized, right? We have people that think this is over. And, and, and then there are people that are like, well, in the northern states, the colder months are coming and flu season, right? So there is more propensity to stay home. And, you know, there are studies that have been done that this is not good for indoor, right? The ventilation, right? That's why restaurants are converting to outdoor. And then you see these comedy clubs are actually trying to convert to outdoor rooftop, things like that, because they say it's better to be outside for this, right? So it's it's where we where we were and where we got to in terms of the information about this is night and day, but we're still kind of getting mixed messages as to what we should be doing.
at, especially at the state level and federally. You know, when we think about the reaction to a, a global health crisis, and that's what we're talking about here, the fact that there's a discussion about what the federal government can be able to put into place versus what the states are able to, and this, if I remember correctly, is sort of an extension of the 10th Amendment, which basically says that whatever the federal government has not been sort of granted in terms of, um, right, not rights, but like laws and such, is handed down to the states. Right. We've been fighting the state's rights issue or exploring that issue for years now, you know, from all different sectors of, of American life. And seeing it play out in the form of the pandemic was startling, actually. You know, because I think about at some point in the midst of that pandemic, what dawned on me was the, con- the comparison between um, our national behavior, uh, behavior, you know, as, as all citizens during, say, World War II, the concept of ration, the concept of of, of um, lost for words, but um, no, it's a good point. The World War II reference. It's well, like caring about your fellow American almost. Sacrifice. I, sacrifice, I think, was the word I was trying to get to. And the idea, like, as a country, we all realize we're truly in this together. And whatever from, you know, from the president's office is being asked of us as citizens collectively, we're all in on it. And what we've gotten to now is a place that, regardless of where you lean politically, there's distrust. So now state governor, you know, at a state level, and Ron DeSantis is a great example of this, where the state of Florida is going to have their own view of it. They're going to make sure that as a state, they are heard. Conversely, Andrew Cuomo in New York is the same way. I live in New Jersey. Phil Murphy is a lot like this too, where states are going to say, this, this is our plan. And depending on how you lean politically, some states took this to a certain place in terms of saying, like masks constantly, almost outdoors, restrictions on outdoor events, things like that. Others have said, it's our state, we get to really make our own decisions and, and had just different viewpoints of it. Right. Oh. I'm, no, you make a great point. You know, I was thinking about this as I was kind of researching more and getting more statistical data about this. Um, you know, in July, just to give you an example, right, Governor Kemp, the governor of the state of Georgia, sued the Atlanta mayor you know, Mayor, Mayor Keisha Bottoms, because she had put a mask order in, in effect in the city. Just think about that for a second. The, the governor of the state and the mayor of the biggest city in that state in a legal battle due to a mask ordinance, right? And then we, we talked about Florida and DeSantis being a great example. So um, here in Miami, uh, we have Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties, right? When, when the lockdown kind of went into effect, right, Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties really didn't lift any restrictions until May. There was, there was really, you know, gyms were closed, bars were closed, restaurants were closed, even golf courses were closed um, from an outdoor perspective until about end of April. And I wouldn't know because I play a lot of golf. Um, and then so, but all of a sudden, what happened was the central and northern counties especially as you go to Orlando and to the Jacksonville area, St. Augustine, they started opening back up and opening up capacity of restaurants, uh, capacity of bars. Um, and we were fortunate enough because we could travel. Obviously, we, li- we were already living down here in the state and we're visiting family that lives in the Orlando area, Melbourne area. And you just see the difference between what was happening in Dade County, 
with mask mandates, curfews at 10 p.m. Um, everybody where you would go into a store like the grocery store would have a mask on. Then you go a little bit further up the state and you're seeing older people are wearing masks, younger people are not wearing masks. Counties were not enforcing mask mandates or didn't even have one to begin with. Um, and again, that kind of stemmed leadership stems and trickles from the top, right? So the, the federal administration response was, well, we can't force everybody, although there was uh, some discussion about that, if you remember President Trump and Governor Cuomo's back and forth. So now the states have to take responsibility, but then the local municipalities are like, well, we don't really agree with the states. So we're going to take it into our own hands. And you're seeing it now with Governor DeSantis has had issues with the teachers union down here in Miami where they didn't want to return back to school, right? And now a couple schools down here have uh, a couple of reported cases and they have gone back to virtual learning, whereas there is some schools that are doing in-person learning. So it's led to a huge, it's, it's this country. I truly believe, and we don't know because we don't, you know, we don't live in Italy, we don't live in Germany, we don't live in the UK. So we don't really know how these countries are handling it and also how people feel from their left, right, you know, political stances. But at least in this country, right, the the American way, right, the land of the free, the home of the brave, there's a lot of, well, it's my right to be able to go out and not wear a mask, right? I should be able to come into this store because I'm free of my own volition. Why do I have to wear that? Whereas opposed to, well, this is a private company and they want you to wear the mask and, and you're not in the store that long. We've politicized that, you know, just those, those commonplace things that would happen of just going to the grocery store and wearing a mask. You see these videos popping up on social media and it's, it's people that are sitting in front of a Target, in front of a Whole Foods, in front of a Walmart, arguing about their First Amendment rights uh, being infringed upon just because that that store or that business has a mask policy um i don't i don't want to use the word comical because that's the wrong that's the wrong connotation there's nothing funny about this it's just like it's sad really you know to, it's sad to see grown people that could easily order some of these items online to be shipped <laughs> would go in, would would spend the trouble of going into a store to do that um, and to kind of exercise their constitutional rights that are being infringed upon because of a mask ordinance, because of an infectious virus that has reached the masses. So I, I really don't know how, what what the solve is for that, but I think that that's always something that will be part of the American fabric with, with anything. You know, look at wars that have happened, look at with the election cycle. We, we tend to, you're either on this side of the argument, or you're on that side of the argument in this country. Yeah, and it comes down to a matter of individual states. It's interesting because as you were sharing about um, going into stores, and I think something that we sometimes get lost on is you know, when we talk about the Constitution, what we're talking about are, you know, are federal, like at a federal level, what are the rights that you have as citizens? But when you enter a store, and I sound like you know, our resident constitutional authority, which I am not by any stretch of the imagination, but when you go into a private business, you are subject to what that private business says in many ways. And as long as what they're not putting forth is considered discriminatory. And this, I think, is where that line gets really interesting, is that if a if said place, and I went to get some food today, for example, mask only, like there is a, there's a sheet that says that. 
as a private business, they reserve the right to say, hey, this is how we operate. If you choose not to follow this policy, we're not going to let you in. Which is no different than when you see in places that say, like, you have to wear a t-shirt or you've got to wear shoes. Like, all these things in there, because it comes down to the fact that it's a privately owned business. They have the right to put these things in place. And as a citizen, this isn't about your rights being infringed. Because actually, in this matter, you don't have many rights. Right. I mean, unless we're talking about your civil rights being infringed, which I think is where the anti-mask argument comes from, is that if it's okay for... um, you know, first, like you have to like bake a cake for a gay couple or things like that. Why shouldn't that same type of mentality be applied to me wearing a mask? Now, regardless of all this, we're talking about, again, and I keep will say this, the global health situation, right? That should far exceed these conversations. But we're not able to even agree as citizens on what does that mean in terms of protections? And And it has seemed as though, individual governors are taking this in a variety of directions. And, and Mike has brought this up a couple of times and I credit him for this. But our show here is not meant to be about who's right, who's wrong, who's right, who's left. It doesn't matter. The reality is that the federal government took one stance, which essentially was to punt and to say, let the state solve it, which is a direct, a directly opposite of what we've seen in the past. You know, early on around March, April, one outcry you heard was about whether the federal government would enact essentially the, um, I forget what the name of the act is called, but essentially it's like, it's something you can do within the defense department about manufacturing. Yeah. Right. Right. And basically saying that as the federal government, you reserve the right that if we are in a crisis, which we are to start mandating what gets built out, what companies are supposed to start creating. And that's been something that we've had in place for years. But at that moment, the federal government receded and said, instead, no, we're going to delegate, we're going to relegate that to the States. Yeah, I mean, there were some examples of some private businesses due to that regulation that right. Trump did that, that actually did help during that crisis. I believe 3M was one that yep. produced a bunch of masks. A mm-hmm. lot of people criticized the MyPillow company for turning their their laboratories into uh, mass creation factories, but um, just just because of what they manufacture versus you know mass creation, but. There was there was a few companies that were instituted, but I don't remember um, how the actual policy was executed. Um, but it, it it leads into a great topic because it's like, unfortunately, you can't get around the pandemic without talking about the polarization, right? And from the political lens, right? Because of the mixed messages at the federal level from the different times of you know the Trump rallies. Um, at the end of February um, where he had mentioned numerous times and you've heard the sound by now, but that, that, that this is a, the new hoax of the democratic party, right? Everyone knows about the Bob Woodward tapes that have surfaced and in, in, in February 7th about Trump actually saying that this could be, you know, pretty lethal for people in a certain age demo um, that it's, it's a little bit more, you know, transmissible through the air um, and that, you know, it was more lethal to use his words, right? But then what's always baffled me is like in this mixed messaging, right? Trump has used the word plague to describe this, right? Uh, You know, and then maybe a few sentences later, this happened recently uh, in the ABC town hall with George Stephanopoulos, right? He, He was talking about the coronavirus and how, you know, this was in essence a plague from China. But prior to that, you know, we were doing well economically, and I, I laugh because a few sentences later, he starts talking about how we need to open up 
different things at the state level, right? And how some states are still kind of restricted. By, by definition in Webster's, right? A, a plague is like a disastrous evil, right? It's, it could be, it's also an epidemic disease, right? Causes a high rate of mortality. So if, if we're talking about something as a plague, and then a few sentences later, it's like, I know the plague's out there, but why don't you open up? That is the definition of an oxymoron. Like, why are we saying in one hand that this is, and comparing this to a plague, and then in the other hand, telling people, go about it, live your life, open up. I don't want to get into the who's right or wrong in that argument, because my stance on this, especially not from the political lens, has been more from the human lens, the death that has happened in this country, or at least the hospitalizations that has happened in this country. So I wanted to segue into that because I have found that, and you see it a lot, you know, we were talking about the media in the last episode, right? And especially from the left, right, center perspective and the big three that we talked about with Fox, CNN, and MSNBC, there have been guests on, and, and the, the media is, unfortunately does this with having guests on that are doctors, just like we talked about in the last episode about doctors having one opinion, then you go get a second opinion, right? So some doctors say we should do this. Some doctors say, well, this therapeutic is actually working, so on and so forth. I don't want to get into, well, I'm not a doctor. You're not a doctor, right? So I don't really want to talk about that. But if, if numbers suggest that this is at least contagious, right? And that you look at hospitals, right? They have allocated a certain amount of resources for their ER and they're overflowed by one, two, 10, 20 people because of COVID, right? So the hospitals are in essence overrun or at least out of bed space, right? All of that is impacting, right? So I've always said we're trivializing the situation because we're trivializing those that have lost loved ones to this. We're trivializing those that have gone to the hospital or have had extended hospital stays because of this. And I go back to like my own personal examples of a friend of mine whose whose mother passed away from this and she was in her 60s. A friend of mine whose grandmother passed away, my sister's friend from high school um, that is around her age, you know, in in the early 30s. Like, yeah, there's three instances, right? But still, why are we trivializing three different examples of people in three different age brackets that have had this, right? So it's... uh, it's crazy to me that we even have to have conversations like this where we're talking about something, uh, regardless of whether or not you lean left, right, politically, regardless of whether or not you're afraid of catching it or not catching it. Right. Um, we still have at the time of January, February, March, April, especially may something that's going around that a lot of people don't know about. We should find out more about it. Wear a mask, right? Wash your hands, stay home. And all of these things become politicized. And you're still seeing it now where there are states that still have certain restrictions and there are citizens that are outraged, taking to the streets. You know, we saw the plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer was based on her lockdown measures. You know, we have threats of extreme violence because of this. And to me, again, I don't I want to go back to what I said earlier. You know, it's not comical. It's really sad. And it's a sad indictment of where we are on this issue. Yeah, it, I mean, I think there is a, I mean, the matter of, of freedom, and I use this in quotations, is sort of what comes up here often. Um, 
and it's you know comes into just personalized decision making like what i think feels especially maddening about this is that you know what we understand is that there are some very basic protocols you can take to significantly reduce the likelihood of of catching the the coronavirus wearing masks maintaining distance um predominantly staying outdoors you know reducing how many people are in a indoor space things that feel relatively manageable um, where there's been a failing, um, and I would argue this is at the state level, this is at the federal level, is that with all these basic protections in place, trying to set up systems that allow, because really where a lot of this outrage partly comes from, I would argue, is small businesses. You know, I mean, you're looking at an economy that is, that's for the most part, since March, continued to take an economic downturn. You're having less people able to work, able to actually generate um, revenue, sell product, develop product. And all that stems from the fact that we're putting in guidelines that say that initially it's going to be hard to do your job, basically. And as a country, one thing we do know about the U.S. is that we do vote with our wallets. We are very mindful of the impact on our wallets. Um, there was a study a couple of years ago recently that in the event of an emergency, how many, the percentage of people that had, it was anywhere between 1000 to $400 in their savings account in the event of an emergency was shockingly low. Um, we truly are a nation that for the most part operates on a paycheck by paycheck basis. If there are no protections from your state government or your federal government to say, listen, we got you, just do these basic things right now, we'll all get out of this okay. Then you kind of feel like you have to fend for yourself. And then you're going to get angry about, I can't reopen my business. I can't put, I can't bring in money. I can't put food on the table. And where this gets politicized sometimes is that, you know, people that are in a privileged, um, situation can say, well, why can't these people just get it together? And you know, why can't they just stay home? For some people going to a place is the sole way of making money. And when you prevent them, they have the opportunity to make money to pay their bills. Uh, recently in the state of North Carolina, you are looking at almost 50% or more people that are not able to pay utility bills. And that is a direct byproduct of the inability to bring in money, bring in revenue personally and to support your family. Um, it's a challenging situation. And, and at the end of the day, politics truly in the United States becomes local as an individual citizen. Right. You, what you, you are kind of asked to take care of yourself. And again, this isn't right or wrong. This is as it is. It's that very much concept of having to take care of yourself. And, you know, again, what this sounds very eerily similar to is pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And in the midst of a global health crisis, that's not a sustainable plan. And that's what you're, as a result, you're seeing what has been a massive economic downturn, um, really states fending for themselves in terms of making decisions. Um, you know, part of the outrage about Michigan is that it feels like the state of Michigan is putting all these things in place and Governor Whitmer, and I'll argue that part of that outrage is it may feel like a nanny state because Governor Whitmer is a woman. And I think there is some level of misogyny about, about what the rationale about trying to kidnap her is and all that stuff. Right. All that being said, um, it still feels like to the people in the state of Michigan that this is the state doing this to them. Had at a federal level been the understanding of like, listen, for the 300 plus million people in this country, we are going to enact the following things. And when you look at a country like New Zealand, who's basically out of this situation now, because they took a nationalized approach, other countries hunkered down and said, as a nation, this is what we're going to do. Now, having said all that, you're seeing a return of the coronavirus in countries in Europe. You know, there's a noticeable increase in cases. So all those natural protections, 
unless you continue to maintain momentum with it, that's, that's key here, it's not going to save you. It's not going to help because this virus isn't going away anytime soon short of a vaccine. I've never looked at the totality of the statistical data, right? Because there is some semblance of, look, we, we are doing, or at least our testing has improved. There was, you know, Rutgers, actually our, our alma mater, um, was able to come up with the, the saliva test, I believe. Um, there are other testing meth- methods that are put into place now. There's rapid testing, there's the antibody testing. There's, there's more testing measures that are put into place, regardless of whether or not some are faulty and produce false positives and negatives and things like that, right? So we, we are testing more, obviously. Prior to this, right, when I talked about that example of the party uh, where some of my friends contracted it and somebody actually got hospitalized from it, it was during that time, the, the response was, let's do a telehealth visit from the medical community for those people. Don't come in here unless you seriously can't breathe, right? Now what we're seeing is people that have some of the symptoms because now the symptoms have uniformity, right? Fever, the night sweats, um, you know, the trouble breathing or at least exercising or even walking up steps becomes arduous and the person has trouble breathing, right? So people have these um, these surefire symptoms, they go get tested now. Whereas opposed to before, they didn't know what it was. Telehealth was like, stay home unless you can't breathe and then come here. So even how we've advanced in that process, right, has been good to see, but we're still not anywhere near where we need to be. And my argument about this has always been, you know, I've seen on, on different news stations where people conflate statistical data relating to other deaths, right? Well, more people die a year, you know, in car accidents than coronavirus. So, you know, we should be, like, we don't stop driving, right? While that's not entirely accurate, right? We do have measures in place for you to, you know, take an auto exam, right? There is new technology in vehicles, right? From an OnStar perspective, from a, you know, driver's side, uh, you know, the, the mirror's perspective of lane departure technology. There's airbag deployment, right? Um, and with, with all of that, right, from the National uh, Safety Council, right, statistical data, there was 38,000 people last year that lost their lives in car accidents. You know, we have 228,000 people that have passed away either with this or from this. And even, and I'm not even arguing about what's been counted as a death versus what hasn't. But even if you were to decrease that by 10, 15%, you still have a huge amount of people that have passed away from this. And I I don't want to trivialize those people's death just because car accidents, you know, people, there are people die in abundance of that from every year. Yeah, the audio industry has evolved. So the medical community wants to evolve with this. This is a new strand, something that's brand new. We don't know what it is. And for some reason, we, we tend to now, especially as the months have gone on and people have stayed home, working from home, or they've been furloughed, they've been laid off, the frustration, the anger starts to set in. And it's like, no, it, look, this only kills old people. Like, let's, let's open back up. And that's why you're seeing this, this politicized effect on this, you know. Um, and even Dr. Fauci. You know, um, we were talking about this offline, but just look at how he's been around uh, for other presidents that have had other, at least pandemic challenges at smaller scales with less death. And where he was in the beginning of this, and people started talking about, you know, his guidelines and recommendations to where it is now. And he's become this political tool that has kind of been put in front 
of this debate. You know, Biden tweeted out, I would listen to Dr. Fauci. Trump is like, has said different things and mixed messages about Dr. Fauci, you know? Yeah. I, it, Fauci's a really good example of what we've seen. Um, it, it's funny because we're sort of putting all this on one individual, but, you know, the, the respect and sort of nationalized what felt like admiration for him in April started to take a turn. And it was funny because you could start to see the beginnings of social media postings, um, just people that, you know, had felt, um, well, why is this person telling us what to do? And that is kind of the core at the end of the day of all this. And then we start to question this person. And it right. does make you start to think about like who, who are the bona fide you know, experts that we're going to trust as a nation? And I, I would argue that I don't think there's many things that we all agree to at all as a country. So Fauci was a fascinating microcosm of you, you, even you take a, you know, infectious disease expert, people will find arguments to counter what he's saying. Like we can't as a country even get down with as a, you know, 300 plus million people all unilaterally saying, let's trust the doctor. If right. we couldn't get to that place and now, yeah, you're seeing both sides of it. Um, I think something that also comes up to me here is the, is the reality of the vaccine is that we are, you know, we're on track to have a vaccine and credit to forget politics for a minute, credit to so many people in the medical community, so many um, just in the pharmaceutical company, um, corporations, everyone trying to get in bed together to get this done. Yeah. Where you, where you are in your politics, be grateful for the fact that we live in a country that is trying to speed up production. Yes, there was many, many things that have gone wrong in the way we've gotten from March 13th to you know, October 27th or October 28th today. Um, but the vaccine is coming. And I think that's, that, that's wonderful news. On the side note, though, is as we talked about Fauci, the reliability of um, who's going to take the vaccine. You know, you've heard, you've heard candidate Biden talk about, or, and same thing with um, you know, vice, president, vice presidential candidate uh, Kamala Harris, talking about, yes, in certain ways, I, certain audiences say this to me, I would take the vaccine, but I wouldn't take it you know, under the advice of you know, President Trump. And then you've had people like President Trump and Vice President Pence who've said, of course, we're going to take the vaccine, which is fascinating to me, because on the right, there is that questioning of expertise oftentimes. But in this moment, you know, that side is making the argument now of like, of course, I will take the vaccine because it's happening under their administration that I get all that. Um, But I mean, as a nation, we're still having questions about vaccines. Not too long ago, we saw the, the, the outbreak of measles started to happen in different pockets of the country because People are, are no longer taking the, um, not as regularly, the MMR vaccine for mumps right. and rubella. So even when the vaccine comes out, I, there is a part of me that is scared about what is going to be the adoption rate of that being taken by everyone. Because you're going to need the majority of Americans to have taken the vaccine in order for this to be effective. Because if not, then we're just going to keep prolonging how long this virus sits and the likelihood of additional strands being developed um, and making it harder, harder to fight it. You know, and that's a perfect segue into, you know, how, how do we get out of this? Like, how do we return to some semblance of normalcy? Um, again, neither of us are in, in the city councils or the government space. Mm-hmm. Um, but just as, as, a, as a person who is living under these new normals, right, where I go to the, the grocery store now, sanitizer lives in the car, 
you know, a mask lives in the car, multiple masks, right? So you're kind of rotating through um, and not breathing in those same particles from a different mask. But how do we get back to some semblance of normalcy? Um, and I think, unfortunately, I think it's going to really predicate on what happens in these winter months. Um, I think the election next week is, is really going to, and especially in the weeks coming as, as votes get counted, I think that's going to take a shape of it because I think at the federal level, right, at least the, the two candidates um, from the Democratic Party have discussed what they would do in office from a federal perspective. Hasn't been fully detailed because it's still some things like we talked about earlier that you can't infringe upon the states, you know, so like that 10th Amendment that we discussed, there are certain things that still can't be executable at the federal level, right? Other than, hey, I need all of us from at the governor's level and then the local municipalities. I need everybody to be on the same page as to what we need to do to really slow the spread of this and ultimately try to at least whittle down the cases or at least have a foolproof contact tracing program. And I think, you know, I, I really can't speak on this you know, as any type of expert, and we don't come off as that in the in this podcast, but it's just tough because I think the new normal now is a mask, is social distance, is the grocery stores having, you know, designated aisles marked in one direction and the other direction. And I think that that's kind of the way we will live our lives. That's the way other countries have always done it for years. When SARS has been, you know, prevalent in, in the Asian countries, they've started to put in lockdowns, mask ordinances, um, and, and they almost have a response for a pandemic that kind of is the entirety of the government. Now, we're not going to get into what some of those governments look like from a democratic, you know, authoritarianism perspective. But at the end of the day, they still enforce these things. And, you know, the U.S. perspective has always been, well, you know, we're sovereign people. We, could, we have free thought. You know, I don't need to impose this. And I think this is the first time, and I back to like the Ebola responses and things like that. This is the first time you're really seeing state, local governments saying travel restrictions, curfews, uh, you need to wear a mask, right? Private businesses were now, like you talked about earlier, having to enforce these policies and, and meeting and confronting, you know, patrons that are like, I don't want to wear a mask. I don't want to come in here. So I don't, I don't know how we get back to a semblance of normalcy. Um, and I don't think it's coming at least for a few more months, especially because if, even in my profession, you know, my company is not opening back up until end of March. You know, there are people still, there are kids in schools that are still, you know, remote learning in different states, whereas some are in person, you know. I don't think this will uh, return to normalcy, at least for another 12-month period. I could see us, you know, six months from now and doing more episodes on this podcast and coronavirus is still a theme that we could easily spend another 40, 45 minute episode on. Yeah, I think one thing that comes to mind for me is that the result of the upcoming elections, you know, I think we often think that the presidential election is very much about the coronavirus. I'd argue that it's actually also what we're seeing play out in the state and at the House of Representatives, that, um, you know, for Republicans that have been running on basically trying to downplay the virus and you know try to push for a return to normalcy now, um, are confronted with data that's saying the otherwise that we're still in a place where this is very much a real thing. 
Um, you may start to see state houses turn around. You may start to see Senate seats flipping, same thing with congressional seats. And what may likely happen is that if you were on the wrong side of this and you lose elections, even if you didn't lose, you may notice the sea change. And now suddenly you're a Republican realizing, you know, maybe my anti-mask and some of the thing I've been sort of pushing for, I may have just won this election, but I'm also very much noticing that the rest of the state house is all kind of leaning blue. Right. And like if nothing happens under my watch, I may be the next person to lose an election. So you may see a softening of the messaging of it. Um, I think that, I think this president, you know, has, has a tendency to sometimes be a very, to be a very polarizing presence, um, whether you like him or don't like him. Uh, I think that if there was a change at the federal level, I think you may start to see a shift. Not to mention the fact that, again, if, if Biden wins, you're looking also at um, different people in cabinet positions. So you're looking at health and human services. You're looking at these different offices where are going to be headed up by people who are not necessarily going to bring politics into this conversation, but more about it from a place of science. And regardless of who wins, the vaccine matters most to both parties. Um, and the funny thing is, regardless of that, there are going to be a sizable amount of people who are going to take the, who are, may likely take the vaccine. I think the adoption rate of the vaccine is where the, the 12 month period that you gave is probably the most likely because you're going to see small segments of people. Um, hopefully the way it's being distributed, looking at communities of color, people that have been most adversely affected by the virus have the opportunity to get to the vaccine earlier. Um, but we also think about senior populations, like likely what you would imagine is you start going into older communities, you know, starting to make sure that they have access to this. And I think the momentum may shift, like you may start to see pockets where those who've been vaccinated, we're seeing the numbers drop in terms of cases. And that may start to bring a spillover effect into other areas. But as a result, what should probably take less months to see like a unilateral adoption of the vaccine may take 12 months for political reasons um, and social reasons as well. But I remain optimistic that, again, the end, the end is in sight in a good way, um, but not coming nearly as soon as it could for just a variety of factors that we've been talking about today. Um, but I think 2021 opens up an opportunity for, um, for a, br a brighter horizon as it relates to the U.S. recovering from the virus. Well said, Nick. And I, I hope everybody out there that is watching, listening to this podcast, you know, you stay safe, um, you know, follow CDC guidelines as best as you can. And we'll see everybody next week. Have a good night.